Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. In an opinion piece published in the New England Journal of Medicine in February of 2019, Dr. David F. Hayes from the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center in Ann Arbor said the following, Substantial progress has been made over the past 50 years in the evaluation and treatment of patients with breast cancer, leading to a nearly 40% decrease in mortality from this disease and associated reductions in complications of treatment. This progress has occurred with the understanding that breast cancer is not one, but several diseases with biologically driven subtypes. Each of these subtypes is amenable to different treatment strategies so that a personalised medicine approach is possible in the treatment of patients with breast cancer. That was in 2019, and yet despite incredible advances in the treatment of hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive particularly breast cancer, triple negative breast cancer remains largely the odd one out. Patients with triple negative breast cancer have poorer survival outcomes, and yet there is still lots of research going here, which we at Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind are going to do our best to unpack, at least a little bit of it. I am joined as always by my co-conspirator, Josh. How are you doing on this fine Australian long weekend, Josh? Most excellently, my dear friend Michael, and what a great way to spend the long weekend and unpack a little bit more of all that there is to talk about with breast cancer. Yes, in case you hadn't noticed by now, dear listeners, we are two very, very boring people. Why don't we cut straight to the chase? I know that we've done a previous episode on early breast cancer. It was actually one of our first episodes. But why don't you give us a little bit of backstory about advanced triple negative breast cancer, which is the subject of today's episode. Thanks, Mikey. Yeah, it feels like a lifetime ago where we spoke, well, we started doing this and spoke about triple negative breast cancer. And Michael and I had a conversation behind, well, not closed curtains or closed doors. Behind closed doors. Yeah, it was mostly. Behind closed microphones. Mostly on the phone, actually. Uh, And I, I went to him and I'm like, Michael, I don't think we've done metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And after we trawled through all of the trials we've done, we had missed this very important and potentially exciting space out. The history of triple negative breast cancer is that it's a bit of a a nomad or, you know, the sad cousin because it's deemed the cancer without expression of estrogen, progesterone, or human epidermal receptor growth factor. Of course, the nomenclature is changing and many people actually don't like the idea of calling it triple negative breast cancer. We just haven't found appropriate receptors yet to target. At present, it's defined as less than 1% of estrogen or progesterone and HER2 of either 0 to 1 on immunohistochemistry or immunohistochemistry 2 plus and in situ hybridization negative. Again, Michael, caveat, this space is also changing and we'll talk about that in a later episode. With respect to the epidemiology, 15% of breast cancers are triple negative, and they represent over 200,000 cases yearly. They are predominantly under the age of 40, with a 2.13 times risk of being under that age, and it's an aggressive cancer. Factors that are associated with triple negative breast cancer, including positive BRCA mutation, particularly BRCA1, and that represents 20% of all triple negative breast cancer cases. 
anyone who is diagnosed with this subtype of cancer should get genetic testing if they're willing to do so, as it will have implications not only for themselves, but for family members. From a race ethnicity perspective, African-American, those that are premenopausal and other factors, whilst not as well validated, but also important include obesity and a young age of first pregnancy. With respect to clinical presentation, interesting difference from an estrogen receptor or hormone receptor positive is that it's more likely to be clinically diagnosed than on screening. So a female or male, although unlikely, uh, uncommon, will more likely identify a lump on their breast than they would from an annual screening checkup. Josh, is that because, as you said, this subtype of breast cancer has a higher percentage of patients who are very young and therefore would not qualify for most uh, government or privately funded screening programs? Yes, but I also think it's because it's so aggressive that you know, one day you're not going to feel anything. And if you don't do, if you don't do a self-examination for a couple of months, you might actually identify a lump because it is so much faster growing than that of the estrogen and progesterone and HER2 equivalents. You're unlikely to identify it in that subclinical phase, I agree. Yeah, exactly. And the other issues when it comes to younger females, denser breasts, mammograms in themselves can miss things. MRIs here in Australia are not funded and that's a pretty big expense and there's going to be a different rationale depending where you are. And many people don't want to have mammograms annually. They hurt, they're uncomfortable. So I've been told many a time. Moving on to the metastatic disease workup, like most other cancers, if you have metastatic disease, the patient should have a repeat biopsy. The rationale for this in the triple negative space is that estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 can have discordance, meaning that if an early cancer is either estrogen or progesterone receptor positive or any other receptor positive, this can change in 13% for estrogen, 28% for progesterone, and 5% of HER2 statuses. So things are not all that they seem. Other things to test for include PDL1, and we'll get to that, Michael, very soon in the trial I'll be talking about. When we talk about initial treatment, if they've got rapidly progressive visceral metastasis or visceral disease, the recommendation is combination chemotherapy. But the thing is, there's no actual prospective data showing that combination chemotherapy has an improved overall survival versus single agent sequential cytotoxic chemotherapy. My viewpoint on this is that if I have someone who's young who has very aggressive disease, I would not be sleeping very well at night giving them a single agent. No, would definitely agree with that. If you've got a lot to lose, you're going to go harder. And also if they're younger, they're more likely to be able to take uh, an anthracycline plus a taxane plus maybe a, a platin um, in their chemotherapy. They're more likely to be able to tolerate all of that. For the uninitiated, Michael is saying, throw the kitchen sink at them. When we... <laughs> yes, quite, almost quite literally. <laughs> yeah. When the, the brief breakdown of the treatment paradigm at present, and this is generally probably going to change again every six to 12 months for the next foreseeable future, is that if they don't have a germline BRCA mutation and their pdl one positive score is less than 10, consider single-agent chemotherapy. If their pd one positive score is greater than 10, 
consider pembrolizumab. Wait for it. We'll talk about that trial a little bit later. I don't want to give it I was all. just going to say, yeah, don't, don't give our listeners spoilers. Uh, when we talk about the germline BRCA mutations, there's discussions regarding PARP inhibitors, and then it gets a little bit more complex as you move further down the treatment scheduling and further up the treatment scheduling, depending on how many lines of therapy you've had. If that confuses you, that's okay. That's medical oncology, and it's all a slow moving process to figure out where you're going to slot in each sequential line of therapy. Michael, I love the trial that you're going to talk about today. So do you want to hit the ground running and tell us all about antibody drug conjugates? Josh does love a good antibody drug conjugate, and with good reason. Aside from immunotherapy, they are definitely one of the major advances in medical oncology. And the ASCENT trial is one of the, not the crown jewel, because that's definitely trastuzumab deruxtecan at this point, but certainly one of the one of the lesser jewels in the crown of ADCs. The background to the ASCENT is, as we've said, there are a number of chemotherapy options. Immunotherapy is coming to the fore, which Josh will talk about in a moment. But cytotoxic chemotherapy remains the standard of care for those who have progressed through one or two types of previous treatment. These chemotherapies can range from things like capecitabine, gemcitabine, eribulin, and vinarelbine. And I'm naming dropping those because they are the control group in the ASCENT trial. The ADC under investigation is a drug we've talked about before, I believe, Josh, called sasituzumab govatecan, which is one of Josh's favorite drugs. It's a ADC comprising of an antitrophoblast cell surface antigen 2 or TROP2 antibody coupled to SN38, which is the active metabolite of irinotecan, and a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor. What a, what a mouthful, Michael. Yes, it is. I feel like I've got marbles in my cheeks just saying it. But it is a drug that has demonstrated efficacy not just in breast cancer, but also in that other very difficult to treat cancer, which I guess could be all of them, but urothelial cancer as well. There was a phase one basket study that provided evidence, initial evidence of SG's efficiency. I'm just going to call it SG from now on because sastuzumab govatecan is way too many syllables. So prior to ascent, there was a study of 108 patients with triple negative breast cancer that demonstrated an overall response rate for SG of 33%, a PFS of 5.5 months, and an overall survival of 13 months. This led to an accelerated approval by the FDA, and the first hint that maybe, just maybe, sasituzumab govatecan could be a viable option for patients with pre-treated triple negative breast cancer. And so the ASCENT trial basically set out to confirm that, comparing SG to standard of care physician's choice chemotherapy. The study enrolled 529 patients, and they were assigned one-to-one to receive either SG or physician's choice of chemotherapy. The options were Aribulin, which was given to 54% of patients in the control arm, vinarelbine to 20%, capecitabine to 13%, and gemcitabine to 12%. Which is interesting, Josh, because I don't know about your practice, but in my practice with triple negative breast cancer, when you've gone through the heavier stuff or 
you have a patient with lower volume or more indolent disease and you don't need a response fairly immediately. I've seen capesider being used long before something like aribulin. Is that the same for you? That is the same for me, but I've also seen many trials where you go, that's an interesting chemotherapy. And I think it comes down to the practice of the institution because there's probably not a huge number of head-to-head trials of these chemotherapy agents and it's what people are comfortable with. You make a good point as usual. And that would be much more prevalent in a study like this because the control arm is physician's choice. In order to get on the trial, patients had to have progressed through two or more lines of systemic therapy and previous treatment had to include ataxane. There was no upper limit for Uh, previous lines of treatment and the number of previous treatments for some patients got truly ridiculous. In the SG group, the highest number of previous anti-cancer treatments in the SG group was 16. In the control group, it was 12. I'm sure that there were several trials in that number, Josh, because I can't think of 16 treatments for triple negative breast cancer. Yeah, no, there's, I don't think anyone would get to 16 treatments. I mean, you could maybe jump through 16 types of chemotherapy, mm. but then that that's ridiculous because you'd be thinking that they're not actually responding appropriately to the drug or they're not giving the drug enough time. And even if you had trials, the trial must have been relatively efficacious or you've just jumped from trial to trial as you you, tra- you continuously got worse. So now none of that is a good sign. Well, I guess the other option is that these patients have just been living with this disease for donkey's years, and it uh, just happens to be one of those examples of uh, breast cancer that's quite indolent. Patients were stratified by the number of previous regimens for advanced disease, and this was uh, grouped into patients who had two or three lines of previous treatment or greater than three lines of treatment whether they had or did not have brain metastases. In total, 61 patients in the cohort had brain metastases confirmed at screening, although interestingly, screening for brain metastases was not mandatory, as well as the geographic region. Patients were divvied up in this area, whether they came from North America or the rest of the world. The treatment continued until disease progression, toxicity, withdrawal, or death. No crossover was allowed, And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoints of overall survival, overall response rate, and safety. In terms of the patient characteristics, the median age was 54, with a range of 27 to 82. Again, highlighting what Josh said, that triple negative breast cancer is a disease that, compared to hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive, disproportionately affects younger people. The majority of patients had had either two or three lines of previous therapy, 70% in both groups, previous treatments being taxanes, as was mandated by the protocol, anthracyclines in 82%, carboplatin in 66%, immunotherapy in the form of a PD-1 or pd one inhibitor in 27%, the time this was going that probably came as part of a trial, and a PARP inhibitor in 7%. A very interesting point is approximately 30% of patients were not triple negative at initial diagnosis, and this is something that we'll come back to in the discussion. But the results, the juicy part, as we are fond of saying on this podcast. The median progression-free survival was significantly better in the SG arm, 
still not great, it must be said, but 5.6 months versus 1.7 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio of 0.41. The median overall survival was 12.1 months versus 6.7 months with a hazard ratio of 0.48, and both of these results were statistically significant. The benefit was consistent over all predefined subgroups of special emphasis, older patients, those greater than 65, heavily pretreated patients with more than three previous lines of therapy, those who had had previous immunotherapy, and those with liver mets all benefited significantly with sasituzumab govotecan over the competition. The overall response rate was 35% versus 5%, a measly 5%. The duration of response was 6.3 versus 3.6 months. And interestingly, the time to response was one and a half months for each arm. I think that's just the fact that you're dealing with cytotoxic agents on both arms. Specifically, data for the brain mets, this was reported separately, much more grim reading as one would expect. The overall response rate for SG was 3% versus 0% in the chemotherapy arms. The PFS was 2.8 versus 1.6 months. The three-month PFS rate was 41% versus 27%. And the nine-month PFS rate was 9% versus 0%, so much grimmer. Interestingly, at least according to the copy of the results that I could find, the overall survival was 6.8 months in the SGR versus 7.5 months in the controller. Without knowing the intricacies of how the drugs in the control arm uh, across the blood-brain barrier. I can't really comment on that, but it's interesting. In terms of safety, anyone who's used sasituzumab govotecan will know that the trade-off for its efficacy is its occasionally quite significant side effect profile. The most common adverse events of any grade in the ASCENT study were neutropenia at 63%, diarrhea at 59%, and nausea at 57%, with alopecia, fatigue, and anemia all uh, occurring somewhere between 30 and 50% of cases. The most common adverse events of grade 3 or higher were neutropenia at 51%, so over half of the patients in the study are being subjected to grade 3 or higher neutropenia. 10% had grade 3 or higher leukopenia, and 10% had grade three or higher diarrhea. So this is actually quite indicative of how SG has fared both in other trial settings as well as in in the wild, as it were, is that if your patients are going to have toxicity, hematological toxicity and gastrointestinal toxicity are significant points of concern. Despite this, SG actually had fewer dose reductions due to adverse events than the control arm at 22 versus 26%. So how to sum all this up? So sasituzumab govotecan is a very good drug in an area of significant need. As Josh mentioned, the evidence for the treatment of triple negative breast cancer after the first few lines probably come becomes a little bit hazy. This is a study that specifically looked at pre-treated patients, so we're not selecting patients who are treatment naive and then trying to extrapolate that to later lines of therapy. And compared to a a wide range of chemotherapy alternatives, sasituzumab govotecan appears to be better, both in progression-free and overall survival. There does appear to be quite a significant toxicity burden as a payoff for this, 
particularly in the areas of haematological toxicity and diarrhea. A couple of interesting points from the study that uh, came up when I was reading it. The first is that 30% of patients did not have triple negative breast cancer at diagnosis. This is something that we see not infrequently, where patients will have usually hormone receptor positive breast cancer at diagnosis. And then thanks to the very effective treatments of uh, hormone receptor positive breast cancer, the colonies of cells that are lower in their expression of the hormone receptors will potentially be selected out and you'll have a relapse of what is effectively triple negative breast cancer. So if you have a patient that relapses, it is important to keep in the back of your mind whether it would be appropriate to re-biopsy just to confirm that they still have that hormone receptor positivity before you start launching into treatment with CDK4-6 if they haven't had a recent biopsy. The other related point was that there was a fairly low use of carboplatin. We know from the brightness study and several other studies that carboplatin is quite effective in patients with triple negative breast cancer. It functions effectively as a poor man's PARP inhibitor. And so for two thirds of patients to have had carboplatin, when it's probably a fairly standard part of your uh, triple negative regimen, is both unusual, but in the context of a third of patients not actually having triple negative breast cancer to start with is probably explainable that way. In Australia, sasetuzumab govotecan is now approved for patients with pre-treated triple negative breast cancer, and we really should start using it earlier. It's a good drug, Josh. I very much agree with you. Having used this numerous times now, most of my patients' toxicities seem to be minimal. I mean, I haven't had hundreds because it's still a very new drug. I found that patients very much dislike because they do lose their hair, which is something we can't really, really fix in the in the short term. But I've uh, seen some quite nice success stories with respect to this drug. Absolutely. So if you're thinking about sequencing, obviously go by your institutional guidelines and the experience of your colleagues and seniors. But for me, I suspect that the drugs you'll want to use early would be uh, platinum, an anthracycline, certainly a taxane, maybe capecitabine depending on your center. But once you've reached that two drug threshold, should definitely start reaching for sasetuzumab govotecan. So Josh, I had the I had a, a successful study, but you have, as we've been hinting and teasing throughout this episode, a very interesting study that, as always seems to be the case, involves immunotherapy. Do you want to tell us about your keynote study? It always seems to involve pembrolizumab specifically rather than immunotherapy. <laughs> That's very true. Maybe it's just because there are a million keynotes. And so no matter what subject we talk about on this show, there's bound to have been a keynote study that's relevant. That's that's it. And one final thing before I jump to my study, which I will summarize in the sake of interest and the interest of time, is I expect saxatismab SG Saxitism of govotecan will go earlier in the treatment regimen of advanced metastatic triple negative breast cancer once further trials are done. On that, we can agree. First time for everything. No, we agree on lots of things. Uh, let's talk about my, not my keynote study, the keynote study by Javier Cortez, which is pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy versus placebo plus chemotherapy for patients 
untreated, locally recurrent, inoperable, or metastatic triple negative breast cancer, a randomized, double-blinded, phase three controlled trial. How was that for my intro? Very steady and uh, clear and logical, but also very slow. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move forward. This was a randomized study. It was done in 209 countries. They were randomized either two to one with this to either the intervention, which was pembrolizumab every three weeks plus chemotherapy, either NAB, paclitaxel, also known as abraxane, paclitaxel or GEM plus carboplatin, or they were given placebo plus chemotherapy. The randomization was then stratified by type because they wanted to know if pdl one expression of less than 1% or greater than 1% was beneficial in this particular trial. Just in respect to combined positive scores with or CPS scores, as so commonly we like to talk about on this, this podcast, it's the number of pdl one staining cells, which include tumor cells, lymphocytes and macrophages divided by the total number of variable tumor cells multiplied by 100, which is, I think, what we need to know. And they wanted to know what would happen in patients that had a pdl one combined positive score. Well, realistically, they wanted greater than one, but for the sake of this trial, it's going to be greater than 10. So remember that number. There was an interim analysis, which is progression-free survival, which I will speak about briefly because I think the... Uh, Overall survival is probably the juicier part for this. Inclusion criteria, as expected, Michael, metastatic, unresectable disease. Some patients were excluded if they'd recurred within six months, which is something important to know. When you look, go and look at the demographics, which is probably an important thing, it was quite well balanced between the two arms. And they actually did a stratification of greater than 1% and a stratification of greater than 10%. Of note, when you look at the chemotherapy options used, predominantly it was gemcitabine and carboplatin in over 50% of each of the cohorts, paclitaxel in about 15 and abraxane in about 30%. Lots of patients had had previous treatment, either new adjuvant or adjuvant up to 60%, which confers the recurrence rate for this cancer is quite high. So after the second interim analysis, the median time from randomization to date cutoff was about 25 months. What they found in the CPS score of 10 or more, the progression-free survival was 9.7 months in the intervention arm versus 5.6 months in the control arm with a hazard ratio for progression or death of 0.65. So it was 35% better than that of poorly chemotherapy with a p-value of 0.0012. So this was statistically significant. What they did find also was that patients who were had ongoing progression-free survival at six months was 65% versus 46% in this cohort, and at 12 months was 39% versus 23%. So if you want to ask your patients who did not progress at the 12-month mark that were still on this study, it was a difference of about 15 to 16% favoring pembrolizumab. So obviously already conferring quite good responses. When you look at the CPS score of greater than one, it was a more, it was a narrow margin that was not statistically significant. And that was 7.6 versus 5.6 months. And then the intention to treat population was 7.5 versus 5.6 months as well. If you go then look at the forest plot, which I do love, most things when you look at the 
combined positive score of greater than 10 generally was positive and then it kind of crossed in certain regions which you can have a look if you go to the trial interesting enough if they've had the previous same class of chemotherapy they didn't do as well and that was in the combined positive score of greater than 10 mind you it was a smaller smaller cohort of only 65 patients out of 258 so the total patient cohort i think was 1300 were screened about 800 were then included in the trial 636 patients had a pdl1 of greater than one percent and 211 patients had a PDL1 of less than 1%. And then they did the cutoffs of greater than 10 and the cutoffs of less than 10 and stratified that way as well, Mikey. I think I might move, though, uh, to the overall survival. But just before I do, let's talk about toxicities. We know there's going to be all the standard chemotherapy toxicities. Anemia, about 50% of any grade in the Pembro chemo arm and about 46% in the chemo arm alone, neutropenia in about 40% of both cohorts. So we can reassuringly say that neutropenia is not one of the major side effects of pembrolizumab, but they did break it down to immune-related adverse events. And what they found, hypothyroidism was the most common at 15%, hyperthyroidism at 5%, pneumonitis at 2%, and colitis at 2%. So not very high. Let's jump ship just for a moment. If Josh does love jumping ship. I do love jumping ships. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, let's go to the uh, overall survival because that's where it really gets juicy. So the median follow-up was 44.1 months. In the CPS of 10 subgroup, the median overall survival was 23 months in the pembrolizumab arm and 16.1 months in the placebo chemotherapy arm with a hazard ratio of 0.73 with a p-value of 0.0185. In the CPS1 subgroup, the median overall survival was 17.6 months and 16 months in the two groups respectively with a hazard ratio of 0.86, not statistically significant. So there, there's your kind of cutoff, right? So greater than 10, we definitely know there's a benefit. Greater than 1, you know, so the less than one, there definitely isn't. Uh, and that's something to be uh, aware of. From an adverse events, they were quite similar to the initial trial um, where we would see 68.1% of patients in the Pembro arm and 669 in the placebo arm. And that was probably the real breakdown of the um, overall survival group for this cohort of patients, which is quite interesting. One other thing to note was tumor response in the CPS of 10 subgroup confirmed objective response rate was in 52% versus the placebo chemotherapy arm of 40%. In the CPS1 subgroup, the objective response rate was 45% in the pembrolizumab versus 38.9% in the placebo control group. And look, quite similar in the control arms, but there was definitely a drop in the pembrolizumab arm as well. And so you can't really provide this as an option for patients with a CPS of one. You have to have a CPS of 10 or more, which I think is the real breakdown. They've got another sub-analysis here, which is really interesting. And if it's greater than one, it will cross that line of significance. And so therefore it's not statistically significant. So, but if it's greater than 10, there is evidence of benefit. So they've broken it down to greater than 10, less than 10, greater than one, less than one, and greater than 20 and less than 20. Yes, my dear friend. Josh, your 
Uh, mentioning a lot about CPS, do you know if in Australia at least there is any funded way to attain this information in your practice? I think I don't know. I think it, well, I think in my hospital it's funded. I think it's worthwhile having a chat to your institution. The reason for that is that pembrolizumab is now on the PBS in Australia, so it's funded by the government. Thank you, government. We appreciate that a Thank lot. Thank you, government. But I, I suspect, given that it's actually a condition of the PBS, I assume it would be funded, but I have not looked into it. Yeah, because obviously, as you're saying, the the benefit does appear to drop off with the CPS. It's you know, proportional uh, to the degree of PD-1 expression on the CPS. So you do need to have that information at very least if you're going to educate your patients and potentially even make clinical decisions about whether you're going to use pembrolizumab at all. Exactly. And the one thing I forgot to say is that this is a Keynote 355 trial. I don't think I put the number here, but we did say it was Keynote because there's a million of them. It'll be in the description. It will be in the description. So first line, pembrolizumab and chemotherapy. Second line, a chemotherapy. Third line, saxofizumab govitecan. Does that sound about right, Michael? That's a good summary, Josh. We could have just said that and knocked off for lunch. Uh, exactly. I would love some lunch. The The one take-home message for this is that they're, they're, it's obviously heading in the right direction, but the survival benefit for this still isn't great for no. a young no. cohort of patients. No, and the options definitely need a little bit of expanding. You mentioned in the intro, Josh, you know, there has to be something or multiple things that's driving the growth of this cancer. We just haven't identified it yet. We've been not stuck. We've been looking far and wide, but we're still classifying breast cancer with relation to its hormone positivity and its HER2 positivity, but there has to be other things. And finding those targets will hopefully enable us to at least partially unlock the secret that is the treatment of triple negative breast cancer. So watch this space, as we always say with oncology, many spaces that need to be watched. Join us next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, because what time is it, Josh? It's hammer time. Okay, you can't say that, otherwise we're going to be sued. No, it's <laughs> it's not hammer time, but it is conference time once again. Before ESMO, there was the World Lung Cancer Conference held in the equatorial island of Singapore. We have been sitting on these episodes for a couple of months now, focused as we were on getting through ESMO and all of the practice-changing research there. But we now have a couple of free slots in our schedule, and so we will release our retrospective episodes looking at the best and most exciting studies from there. So we hope to see you then. Make sure you tune in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. <laughs>